Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. Episode 26, Designing Magic with Rob Donahue. Recorded for Indie Plus. Presented by Mark Diaz Truman and Rob Donahue. We are live. Welcome. This is the Indie Plus interview uh, for the May Magic Game Night. I'm Mark Diaz Truman, one of the organizers of Indie Plus, and today I'm filling in for the very capable Rich Rogers, who usually handles all of our wonderful panels and interviews. But since Rich is away on very important gaming business, I have been tasked to fill his enormous, uh, very competent shoes and have the pleasure today of interviewing uh, the one, the only, the man, the myth, the legend, Rob D. from Evil Hat. Welcome, Rob. Hey, hey. Uh, so, hi. <laughs> um, they are very big shoes. I think we can all testify to that. <laughs> uh, this is the point where I say who I am in case you have no idea because there's a middling chance that's the case. Uh, I'm Rob Donahue. I'm the co-founder of Evil Hat Games Productions. What we call it kind of depends on the conversation we're having, uh, along with Fred Hicks, who you more likely do have heard of since Fred is the... Man, I've been very lucky to partner with because if you want success in business, he's really the best guy to do it with. Um, I'm more of the nerd in a jar in the background. I've written a fair amount of game theory stuff in in my blog and in other places. Uh, I've written a bunch of stuff for Fate, for Spear of the Century, for Dresden Files, for all the various games. I've done a little bit of freelance stuff on the side, but mostly I'm just, I mean, I'm a giant nerd. I'm on a podcast about gaming. I think I'm a giant nerd goes without saying. I'm wearing a Doe Pilgrims of the Flying Temple hat, which is styling and want one. Oh my God. Let me, let me, let me see the hat. I can't, really? Wow. I didn't even know such a thing existed. Yeah, Daniel, because it's Daniel. Daniel Solis, who, and if you don't know who Daniel Solis is, you are missing out. Uh, he True story. One of the most talented people in in board game design out there at the moment. He's brilliant. He's and the thing that pairs it. He's also a brilliant, brilliant graphic designer. So these two things come together, and he casually makes these games, which you would kill to be able to produce. Um, and this icon is for an RPG, sort of RPG, sort of storytelling game called Doe Pilgrim to the Flying Temple, which he created. I really like the icon. He created a cafe press store, and so this is my nerd hat. Oh, such a great nerd hat. It is. It's, <laughs> it's a nerd hipster hat, because you don't know what it is, but I know what it is. It's, it's even better. You were into it before it was... Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> before it was any award-winning and, and all these other things. Um, but no, um, so my day gig is I'm a systems analyst, which is uh, one of those terrible catch-all job titles for someone who comes in and listens to a bunch of people talk and hears a whole bunch of explanations for how things work and then tries to pull it all together and make some sense out of it. Um, which means I do some project management and I do some documentation. I do presentations and I do a little bit of management on that and a lot of duct tape stuff. And the kicker of this is this goes really tightly with why I enjoy gaming and how gaming works. Uh, I really, really feel that Honestly, if you've ever GM'd a, a table of D&D, then you've got a lot of training in project management. And if you've ever GM'd a table of story gamers, then you can run a meeting. Uh, <laughs> That's a, it's sort of a beautiful pitch for gamers uh, to think about all the skills they develop at the table as job skills. Oh, it's huge. I mean, I hate to break it to you, but the, that neck breather over there who wants to talk about his 12 pole arms and the girl who's shown up for the very first time and is now terrified because these six guys are making her feel creepy and that one guy over there who's got great ideas but is never willing to talk. And I'll, if you've dealt with these people on the ta- at the table... That's no problem. Much, yeah, much much worse than anything you're going to run into at the average office. Um, right, right, exactly. Cool, cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Rob. I'm excited to talk with you um, for for no other reason than because you you're so loquacious and eloquent <laughs> on your blog uh, <laughs> that I am I am just excited to hear what what comes out uh, because I think you always have something interesting to say. Well, um, I am too because I never know what is going to come out. So. <laughs> I figured that would be the case. Um, and, and by the way, if you're not subscribed to Rob's blog, you're totally missing out. Um, well, not so much. I, I've gotten really, really lax about updating it lately because for a good well, cause, we've been writing Fate and Fate Toolkit and 
other things for that. Um, but I, I think it's also acceptable just to go ahead and read the back ones. That's also fair enough, fair enough. I mean, I do it all the time. So, <laughs> oh, boy, that, that Rob Donahue guy. Smart guy. Smart guy. Good looking, too. <laughs> but I also have the advantage of having done some uh, work for Evil Hat on the Fate System Toolkit. Um, and so I've gotten to see, as many other people have through the Kickstarter, some of the early drafts of the Magic chapters, which you've written. Yep. Um, and so when it came time for us to talk to someone about Magic, you were absolutely the right guy to talk to. Um, and you really blew me away with, with sort of uh, one section, which is the what is Magic section. Um, and I think it's, it really blew me away because it boiled it down to just a couple of quick points. And so I thought the best place for us to start our discussion today, just to kind of get everybody on the same Rob Donahue page, is to say, like, what are those real quick ideas of what you think magic is in a role-playing game? Well, so you better tell me the ones that I wrote. because Yeah, yeah. Now I'm going to start inventing I have, them, I have them up. So they are tone, cost, limits, availability, and source. Oh, okay. And, and these these five things really struck me as being interesting because they seem to really um, give some sort of like uh, shape to thinking about how magic systems are different from each other. Oh, that's well. I want yeah. Go. The kicker is there's a wrapper that goes around all this. Right. Right. Magic is actually you can't even finish that sentence, or rather, I can't finish that sentence because there's a there's an end to that sentence, but whatever end I give to it is going to be a lie. Because magic always serves a purpose, but what that purpose is is going to depend upon you and what you need it for. Magic is magic can be an excuse. There is something I want to have happen in this fiction, so I will introduce magic that works in a certain way that allows this thing to happen, and that's great. But that's not the only thing magic does. Sometimes it's the other way around. Well, now that there is magic in this setting and it works in a certain way, I can extrapolate from that and then do these other cool things. I can. So, which is it? What's the what's the primary purpose? There's no right answer. You got to figure out what it is that you want. And you'll find that when you talk about magic, it's full of things that seem like contradictions like this. Um, one of the biggest questions you'll run into is: Should a magic system make sense? And, I don't know, uh, there's a really good argument for it. If a magic system makes sense, then you can build things from it, you can extrapolate from it, you can have all the logic in the world, you can do cool, awesome things from it, but a magic system that makes a lot of sense doesn't necessarily feel very magical in a lot of situations, but sometimes it does. What's right. the purpose? What are you trying to strive for? Um, and that right there feeds into that first thing. That's tone. That's what does magic feel like? What is it... If you're not talking in terms of mechanics and rules, what is it that you're really trying to strive for? Is magic a dark and mysterious thing that you don't want to touch? Is magic a, another kind of science? Is magic an entirely metagame construct that can be used to explain an underlying layer of behavior? Um, and that last one is, while it is what it is in Mage, is also super, super dangerous in gaming. Uh, because we as gamers, we're big nerds, and the first things we go for are the meta-level stuff. Uh, I, I will tell you, if you ever, ever, ever do a high-level game where you're talking about players controlling resources and trade and stuff like that, the, you can spot the nerds, because the nerds who are the ones who come to you say, I want to control shipping. <laughs> and they all act like they're being super clever, because they're not asking for anything that's much bigger than, you know, controlling the indigo or controlling gold. Oh, it's just shipping. It's like, no, you're trying to control the network, because you're a big friggin' nerd. And I hate to break it to you, but my two-year-old son figured that out when he realized that rather than getting the yogurt snacks, he should control the bag of yogurt snacks. Okay, so <laughs> when you're doing that, when you're trying to, trying to jump for the metal control, you're being as clever as my two-year-old, and I will and I will come. He's sworn out, he's subsequently figured out other things that gamers have figured out. Because Right. <laughs> sort of like being the spice, uh, the, what are they, the, the, the trade guild, or the, the guild in yes. uh, Dune, yes. right? It's like, well, we'll can just control, don't worry about us, we'll just control the ships. Just travel between planets, you know. It's not a big deal. Nothing big. <laughs> well, you've got, you've got like Ninja Fremen, right? That's way more cool <laughs> than controlling travel. Right, exactly, yeah. So that tone becomes becomes really the first, almost the first thing you figure out, right? It's like, if you've got a clear grasp of the tone, then it, that's the thing that you can keep coming back to when you run into questions with other things. I mean, it's, 
does this mechanic that I've got in mind actually serve the tone? If magic is dark and dangerous, I want a mechanic that makes it risky to use magic. But right. and then I start getting into some other troubles with that because risk is a really dangerous thing to fiddle with. But I think that we'll get it. So, so what the heck was my next point? What clever thing did I say? Yeah, yeah. So, so after after tone, you said cost. Cost. You know, just... Ah, yes. So magic needs to have a cost. I, and this is there's something of a taste thing here. There are plenty of. Uh, of systems out there where magic's cost is kind of negligible. Right. Uh, and that's fine. That's still a cost. You uh, Even if the cost is the opportunity cost of choosing magic over choosing a sword, you need to figure out what the costs are. And if you're comfortable with the costs of magic being very, very cheap, then what you're saying is, I want magic to happen all the time. I want people to use magic a lot. I want magic to be a ubiquitous and common part of things. Uh, if you want to say the cost is that it, the costs are not in using magic, but are in learning magic. Then you can say, well, all right, magic is uh, just as usable as swords and whatnot, but you need to buy a magic skill to do it. So not everyone is running around using magic, but the people who are using magic are using it as freely as everyone else. That might be like the Jedi, right? So the yeah. Jedi, like they can use the Force like crazy, but, but they have to spend their whole lives. Yeah, by in in monastic study and doing that, and what and right. how big that trade off is uh, in fate specifically. There's all sorts of axes you can do that on. You can make it a skill. You can make it a stunt. You can make right. it an effect. Um, and basically, what you're saying is because that's opportunity cost. Opportunity cost is a great thing to just be aware of. It's the you don't have to make something cost more than something else. You just have to introduce a trade off that has to be made for it to be available. Um, right. But then, there's the more classic idea of the cost of magic, of things like mana or sacrifice or prices that you have to pay to, ca to cast it. Um, and you can mix these prices, but you need to be really cognizant of them because if you're doing both kinds of prices, realize you're making magic twice as expensive as you realize. If I right. need a dedicated magic skill and, I'm, and I've got a limited mana pool, that's a more expensive type of magic than I just have one or the other. Um, right. that's, maybe that's fine. Because maybe magic is sufficiently awesome to be totally worth it. Or maybe the use of magic is going to be common enough. But assume that people are going to sort of try to gravitate towards an optimum balance and make sure that that's about what you want to see. Um, so it's dual. I mean, prices are, prices are really, really important, but there's no right way to do them. You just need to make sure that they line up with what your goals you're shooting for. And again, we come back to that tone. If I want magic to be rare, then I make magic expensive, and I then figure out what expensive means, because I think about who has it. Um, if you've played uh, Skyrim Elder Scrolls, um, there, uh, there's a the dragon shouts. They're this very powerful, very rare magic, and one of the key concepts of the game is actually tied to price, because there are these monastic guys who live up on a mountain who learn these dragon shouts that take them years to learn each one, and they're really powerful, and they can do them all the time, and these guys have to live in isolation both to study and because they're so powerful and dangerous. And your character, minor spoiler, but if you're spoiled by this, then you have no um, your, your character is, is a cho the chosen one, and so you learn these much faster and much more easily. You, you pay a lower price than the default price of betting. And that is a very clear distinguisher for your character. So there's the other element to bear in mind with price. Changing prices in changing context is a very powerful tool. Right, so you have like a, a species that learns it faster or, you know, giving one particular class a cheaper kind of magic will, will impact how it shows up. Exactly, and, 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 and even just moving around the prices a bit. I mean, let's say that uh, for you, all you need is an aspect. To, to be able to use magic, and then you can use it in conjunction with some other skill, whereas I need an aspect and the skill. Um, and that becomes a differentiator. Again, balance is, of course, a, the, the bugbear that hangs over all of these things, but don't sweat that too much. So here's the thing. Here's the, here, this is, this is going to be a tangent, but this is a critical tangent. Balance is not one thing. And a lot of games break when they think it's one thing because balance right. exists. There is a balance in the setting. Right. And, that, and that makes sense. And that's the rules of the setting and the logic of it. And that's basically people will push things as hard as they can. And that's what, what will happen in the setting. But the balance of the setting is not the balance of your group. 
It does not matter if your entire group are vastly out of balance with the rest of the setting, as long as you're aware that that, that imbalance exists and that's what you're pushing for and that's what you're going for. Um, similarly, so the only thing you're really looking at is balance within your players. And even that, what are you balancing for? Are you balancing for power? Well, maybe, but is power really, is it power or is it screen time? Is it focus? Is it the opportunity to do what it is you want? Because any one thing that you say is the thing you're balancing for is probably too simple for your actual table. Yeah, Marvel really changed management about this, right? Yeah. Like, Marvel does a beautiful job of giving everybody screen time. Yep. So it doesn't matter if Thor and Spider-Woman are in the same scene because the big bads are all going to go for Thor, first of all. Yep. So he's going to get tied up instantly in whatever, in whatever the, the biggest bad on the screen is. And then leaving Spider-Woman to actually, you know, do stuff. Do something, right. And then two, they each get the same amount of time, right? So yeah. it's cool that in his time, Thor knocks out half an army because he gets the same amount of time yep. that Spider-Woman does to well, instead hack into the computer and fix the problem. Well, and I'll go a step further. Even though I think Marvel does a much better job with balance, I think that's still not perfect because the reality is, what do the people at your table want? Oh, right, if exactly. If your table is full of gregarious people who are all ready to choose scenery, then equal screen time is totally appropriate. If right. your table is full of gearheads, then power and crunchiness is totally appropriate. Right. But if you've got that one guy over there who's perfectly content to be really quiet and not want to play, do much and engage much until he's got that moment he wants people to really step in and do it, then that's what balance is for him. And you can only balance your table. A game can help you, but a game will never be perfectly balanced for your table. Uh, yeah, John Wick is really fond of saying, right, like, game balance is the GM's concern at some level, right? It's that it can't be the game designer's concern solely. It has to also be the people who are running the game. The game right? designer can give you tools to help with it. Right. And should. That's absolutely desirable. But, yeah, it's ultimately your table. Right, right. Which brings us to the third part, which is the limits, right? You talked yeah. about limits being important to the design. Right. And this one, this one's a big uh, bugbear for me because this, this also applies to certain uh, styles of gaming. Um, the most important question, just personally for me, is, the, is what can't magic do? Um, yeah. If magic can do everything, then you're playing mage. And there's right. nothing wrong with playing mage. <laughs> That's totally awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. But... <laughs> If that's not the game you signed up to play, that might be a problem. True. And actually, and so this is one place where I wanted I wanted to ask you, you know, about because obviously the, the limit everybody goes to, the, the two sort of poles are mage, I'm gonna do whatever I want and just have to imagine it. Yep. Right. And then Vancy and Magic, where it's like there's a list, you get to pick from the list, and you only get like three of those things on the list. Yep. And then when you use the spell, some chance it's just gone. So what are some costs, what are some limits that would be in between? So my favorite limits um, are thematic. Uh, and see, Mage is a really interesting example because Mage is a game that is more brilliant and more crazy than any given expression. I know. If anyone ever plays a game of Mage, they are picking the slice of the Mage pie they like. <laughs> well, well put. Yes, and, and it's an awesome pie. And the and, but, but the problem is, it's such a huge, crazy pie. You really can't use all of it at once. But right. these are so good. Um, and so, my take in, on mage, and this this will make sense in, in in the greater context, is mage. The spheres don't need to be there. They okay. the spheres are a way to mechanically express a different idea entirely which is not on your character sheet. Um, you can go into Mage and say, this is my character, this is how he feels magic. He feels that there is a celestial fire which comes from the sun and flows into us all and connects all of us, and I do things that are based on that logic. So if there's a celestial fire that comes from the sun down to me, then I can use that to send laser beams out and fry things, or send healing warmth, or connect us all as human beings. But, you know, since it's the, since it's the you know, warm right. light from the sun, I can't use that to create a cell phone. Right. That just doesn't make any sense. And that's the thing. Is the mage at that level, at that point in, in where you've got a 
point where magic makes sense. The main barrier uh, on magic is the point at which the mage would look at you like you're an idiot for suggesting something. Because it's a different way of looking at the world, and it makes as much sense as whatever logic you operate under today. If I told you, go breathe underwater, you'd look at me like I'm an idiot. Because that's just stupid. It makes no sense. That's not how breathing works. But And by the same token, if you said that to the, the Celestial Fire guy, he would look at you like you're an idiot because that's not how Celestial Fire works. And the thing that's fantastic with that kind of thematic interpretational magic is if I've got a clear understanding of it and the GM's got a, a clear understanding of it, we both share that understanding, then it's fantastically powerful not in the overwhelmingly powerful sense, but in the gaming sense, because then the logic of what I do with magic flows from our actions with the same logic that my physical actions do. In the same way that when I describe my character walking into a room, I don't have him walk through walls, because that's physics. That's ridiculous, right? Token, I don't have magic do things that, that magic can't do, because that's magic. That's, that's the rules. It's... But... Getting to that point of shared understanding, that's hard. Especially if you're playing a game where there are six people at the table and each of them has a unique and distinct view on these things. And so Mage really, at, at that level, which is really how Mage is sort of, how it's been pitched at various points, it, that's the way it's supposed to operate. And the spheres are just sort of the this behind-the-curtain right. mechanical way that these things get represented. Um, but unfortunately, since we're gamers and we drive towards the meta, the game becomes <laughs> about the spheres. It's interesting because Mage was actually the first like non D and D game I ever played. Yeah. And I was like in high school, and I had some older friends who were like, "Yeah, we're gonna play this Mage game." And before we got to play, the GM was like, "Look, you got to write out a paradigm. You have to write yeah. out how you see the world." And that's what we did. He's like, "Before you touch your character sheet, before you do anything else, you got to write out like 500 words on how magic works." Awesome. Yeah. And it was great because it was like, oh, right, this is how magic works. I'm like, I see the world like the Matrix. It has all these like codes, and I can hack it by like sort of getting yeah. access to the code somewhere. And then that shapes the whole. I, well, you know, I can't make something from nothing right. unless I had some sort of right. I, I have to I can't teleport. I can move right. really fast. Right. Um, yeah, I can go through a wall, but I can't just walk through a wall. I gotta hack the wall. And right, exactly. And then the and then the wall a door is created, or I reduce the the substantiality of the of the wall. Yeah, exactly. But there's right. logic to it, and it totally right. makes sense. And that's and that's one of the, the, the great things about saying, yes, magic can make sense and still feel very logical. Um, but it requires that sort of creative core of what it's going to be. Um, now, you don't have to go as far as mage. This is why... Um, so one of the very, like, Fate 2, very early magic systems, one of the first ones that was... That was I, I think it actually got added after Fate 2 got published, it was, or maybe it just at the very end. It was literally just a thematic magic that is, you get a magical aspect. Fire magic, air magic, whatever. And you just figure out what it means thematically, and when you invoke the aspect, instead of getting a plus two, you can do something consistent with that theme. Okay. You could throw a bolt of fire, or you could, uh, you could resist fire, or you could be filled with vigor, or whatever. And the trick of it was... And this is something that shows up a lot of you. It's really fun to read tarot stuff and uh, fortune-telling stuff because it's chock full of this sort of thinking, is the, what does an element mean? Because when I say fire, well, sure, fire means things that burn, but there are all these secondary meanings to fire and all of these extrapolating things, which you can do an entirely fire-based magic system where flames never appear. And it's still has all of those elements of fire. Um, Everway was fantastic for this, since Everway had a very strong elemental theme to it as a game, and it had was full of these elemental magic systems that tapped on these secondary values of these things. Um, but if you want to use it more concretely, Ars Magica was great for this, and it was a, that was a big influence on Mage, since in Ars Magica, you are, once again, instead of spheres, you've sort of got a double set. You've got verbs and nouns. Okay. So you, and then verbs are, you know, like create, control. They, they have Latin, but that's what they are. Create, control, destroy. And the the nouns are mind and earth and fire and illusion. and all. So I want to create an illusion. I take my create, I take my illusion, and I create an illusion. Um, and 
depending upon how complex and crazy it is, then the difficulty of that is, is slides up and down. Um, but that you get a huge amount of flexibility, um, but you also get uh, a structure that it stays within. And this is where uh, it had spells in the same way Mage had rotes. Okay. Uh, I think you get a lot of power out of that, out of having that list of examples. Um, and rotes kind of get... Uh, they get. I, I feel they get short shrift from a lot of, of mage players because at the end of the day, unless you're specifically hooking in some mechanical thing that says, I can do this particular rote less expensively or do this other thing, um, rotes are less fun than, than just creating stuff all the time. Because right. Um, and that's fair because it is more fun to just create stuff, but the rote lists are totally, totally interesting and awesome because if nothing else, they're a really smart, really creative person's idea of things that you could do with this combination. I think the oh. new, I think New World of Darkness Mage sold me much better on roads, right? Because yes. it was just oh. sort of like, yes. really had a good list of magic that you could do. Uh, yes. But I'm still curious about this idea, like what are some other in-between limits okay. uh, that you would think about? So, um, so you got thematic limits and that's, that's fairly straightforward. Yeah. You've got, uh, let's see, the, you can actually do the question, the big thing with most limits is what are you going to anchor the magic to? Exactly, right. Exalted anchors the magic to skills. And it's a very loose anchor because ultimately you can end up using your sword skill to chop a mountain in half. Right. That's still sort of the, to tap the mage word, that's the paradigm that you're building from when you, when you go up the sword charm tree. Um, and... So, I mean, and that's, again, to some extent, we're talking about the, the virtues of limits. It's the, what is the thing that is keeping this in check? Well, because everything that this is doing is kind of related, has got to be related to sword. I can, how can I extend the idea of a sword? Um, Nobilis takes this probably to the most extreme. And on some level, much of the play of Nobilis is playing with this idea of what the limits of what something means are. Um, which makes fun, because that, because that's the rub, is that, that, Having the GM and the player on the same page is a, is is really really foundation. But if you can also find those small gaps where there's a disconnect, there's often a lot of right. play in there. Right. Yeah. Because then the the friction of it of having to explain better how it fits ends up crafting the narrative that actually gets used. Yep. That's um, awesome. Yeah. Cool. I mean, and beyond that, I mean, there there are like super meta magic systems out there. There was one of the magic systems in Fate Two was. Uh, Difficult. You could literally do pretty much anything with all of the limitations based upon how expensive the FX would be if this was a TV show. <laughs> okay, so the limit varied based on right, how right. difficult something was. Yeah, well, it sort of. So what it ended up being was it was sort of a backdoor way to try to do um, to encourage more subtle magic because if. The if all the magical effect required was mysterious noises and maybe a little bit of dim lighting, you could totally get away with that. But right. If it you know shattered a building or cracked, then it's like oh no, that's going to eat up our entire FX budget for the for the season. So that's a really really high difficulty. Really high difficulty, right? I think literally like the lowest difficulty was you know bongos and interpretive dance. Right. Easy easy stuff at the bottom. At all. Cool, good. So the next one on your list was availability, um, about how many people have access to magic. Right, and that's tied, that's tied to price. That ties back to price to some extent, um, since the logic of the one ties upon the other. Um, but to some extent, what you're really asking there is, how magical is the world? Um, because if... Uh, let's look at D&D as, as an example. Right. In D&D, magic is part of the infrastructure in most of the D&D settings. Okay. There are wizards in every city, um, and what that means varies from setting to setting, um, and sometimes taken to a very logical stream, you get things like Dark Sun, where uh, that presence or absence of magic has really reshaped the world. But it can impact things in... Eberron is full of examples of ways in which this impacts things in a very mundane day-to-day -day existence. Um, I think one of my earliest uh, gaming memories of a thing from uh, Dragon Magazine was 
in a city, there was a guy who sold ice because he had a deal with a wizard who once a day would walk into his warehouse and cast Cone of Cold on, on barrels of water. <laughs> right. <laughs> and lo, an industry is born. And exactly. And it just, and it goes, but the thing is, we love that sort of stuff. I mean, uh, as it, that, that world building logic, that's saying, okay, well, if there are bags of holding in this setting, what does that mean? How if those can be gotten reasonably easily, then what does that mean to the mail system? Right. Um, what does that mean to banks? What is that? A lot of people will write that sort of stuff off as logistics, but it's mostly doing that is doing a disservice to things that are really interesting, just because they're not interesting to you. <laughs> and you know, J.K. Rowling has basically all the Harry Potter books. Yeah. Are basically built around. This idea that if there's a magical society where everybody has access to magic, yep, yep. then the economy would look kind of like this, right. and the government structures would look kind of like that, and security would be which security would just mean a totally different thing. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. Because right? um, locked doors are irrelevant, right? And that's that's the joy of a lot of this world building, and and this is unfortunately one of the uh, things you run into with urban fantasy that's uh, sometimes really good. And sometimes really bad, yeah. is if the stuff's got to be sort of in a secret world, then you're sort of tamping down on that world-building end of it. Um, I'll, uh, I, I'm not a huge Charlene Harris fan, but I'll, I'll totally give props. The Starting from the premise that vampires exist and have gone public, oh. a great starting point. Yes, right, right. Because then it just ripples out from there exactly. about, like, you know, ma it's almost like magic has shown up in the world for the first time. Right. I mean, the Shadowrun thing being like the most extreme example, but that's right. It's fun to do that because I mean, if you think world building is fun, then one of the first things you do with world building is you ask a question that starts with "what if," and once again, we come back to that thing that magic opens up a whole array of new "what if" questions. Now, and this is, but that's just on one end. That's the there's a lot of magic. What if there are right. magic practitioners in the world, and one of them's a PC? That's there's a story there, right? Is, but I want to find out, um, right? That's that, and that's that's one of those like Luke Skywalker stories, right? Where yeah. there's only there's only one Jedi in the whole world. Yep, and and it's you. So what are you doing? Ah, I don't know. Um, and and you can even mix these things. Um, you can have magic that works one way, being being sort of the given thing, but then you've got this one guy who's got magic that works a different way, and which is the plot of Avatar. Yes, uh, <laughs> right. um, and uh, there there are a couple books you could point. The uh, Raymond Feist magician stuff sort of has elements right. of that, um, and, and it's fun. It's nice to have that kind of standout weirdness to it, and it gets doubly fun because what you run in, you're back to the looking at you like you're an idiot thing. Because if everyone knows magic works like this, and this one guy is running around saying, "No, I summon spirits, and they dance for me," he's like, "No, you're a crazy person." <laughs> Right, right. Until you show me, and in which case my mind is blown. Right. Or right. no, or I think you're still, or I think you're doing regular magic and tricking me in some oh, way. Oh, right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. What do you, what do you do to balance at the table? I mean, because I think those stories are so powerful, right? Yeah. Where, where one or two people have the magic, and and yet that means only one or two of the PCs have the magic. How do you balance? You know, playing uh, how, do, how do you have it? Yeah, how do you avatar? Because that's, I mean, that's that's right. a good question. Because avatar is one of the most awesome things there is in existence. So right. And you could totally see the party, right? It's like yeah. there's Toph and Sokka yeah. and oh, yeah. Aang, right? And yeah. Now, I mean, and I think that you look, actually looking to the source material is a good, is a good bit of guidance for that. Because, yeah, I think so. Um, let's look, if you look at the other benders, they're awesome. I mean, as benders within their particular sphere, uh, Katara and Toph are they're better than Aang is within their sphere. Right. And they are really best in the world kind of category. You have metal bending, you have blood bending, you have these things that are not otherwise tappable. Um, now, Sokka's an oddball case, but I'll tell you something. No. Sokka is the guy, the guy who's playing Sokka is getting exactly what he wants. It's true, and you know what? By the end, he ends up being He's like awesome. the greatest warrior ever. Yeah. He, he becomes a, a sword bender. It's just not... Oh, yeah. Well, no, and yeah, he's, he's still totally badass, but, well, there's there's actually kind of an interesting thing, because, I mean, he, he really is outclassed by everyone around him. Right. But he has other avenues. The fact that he, he's, he goes down the tech route also ends up playing a lot. But again, that's... 
if you are the player who likes that character, if you are the guy who, and, and I'm, I'll go to my own bias, who plays Hawkeye when you're play, doing an Avengers game, <laughs> then that's right. what you want. Being that's out the whole point. Cost, <laughs> being out cost and power is just not that important. I, right. I mean, one of my absolute favorite images in the entire Avatar series is literally there's a point where they're coming up through the sewers into one of the cities, and there's all this muck coming down, and there's Aang up at the front, and he's got a little air sphere in front of him, and it's sewing around him, and Katara's just bending the stuff around him, and Sokka's just <laughs> getting facefuls of this stuff. <laughs> right. And, but that's what you sign, and, and, that's, and that comes back to balancing your table. If you don't have a guy at your table who's going to enjoy playing Sokka, then you don't have a Sokka. Don't don't play Sokka. Right, exactly. You introduce a, a badass firebender or, or something else that, that offsets it. And, and great, that's totally workable too. Right. And I think, I think part of what you're saying is that it's about, you know, magic should not make one person unique at the expense of other uniqueness. Right. Right. Well, it, every character should be interesting enough that you'd want to see them do something. Exactly. And magic is... Magic is a really boring reason to watch things. So, so here's the thing. When we are engaged by fiction, by characters in fiction, I'm, I'm talking not just gaming, but writing and reading and whatnot, the thing that we respond to is people being pushed outside of their comfort zone, being pushed beyond what is normal for them. Um, yes, beyond I mean, their own competence in some ways. And that, that's one of the ways. You know, there's a lot of ways that they can, they can right. get One way or another, we don't want a book about your normal day. Right. The problem is there tends to be an assumption that, well, I mean, the Avatar's normal day must be interesting. He's the Avatar. He's got all these problems. Well, no. It might be novel. Huh. It might be kind of interesting to see that for a little bit for the first day, but then the second day, you're like, well, the fact that you've got all these powers and you do all this super stuff is not intrinsically interesting. Right. It, it's just novel. It's not interesting and it's not compelling. It's why stories about adventurers are hard to make interesting because if going into dangerous places and killing them with swords is your day job. <laughs> right. It, I mean, it reminds me of two things. One is um, the Will Ferrell movie uh, where he is a, a tax attorney and someone starts narrating his life. Oh, God, I still need to see that one. Oh, it's beautiful because it is just about his day, but it throws this level of weirdness over it. Like, yes. you know, and then Rob took a drink of his coffee. Yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. And like, it really, really reminds you like, that's what it takes. Right. And then the second thing it reminds me of, um, you know, because you're talking about pushing people beyond what they're comfortable with. Um, you know, if, if your day job is going in and killing things with swords um, is like how much something like avatar has to push the characters to, to make you care about what happens. All right. I right. mean, like, you know, is, is the problem with Avatar that Aang needs to get more powerful? No. The problem with Avatar, for, for Avatar is that Aang needs to get a grip. He needs to grow up. He right. needs to come to terms with what's going on and face up to it. His, right. His level of power is almost irrelevant to it. I mean, there's, oh, sure, so the comic comes along and that's a last-minute stake-raising kind of thing, but that's a gimmick. Right, because he's not he's not going to win anyway, right? Against against Ozai, unless he figures out how to yeah. fight, that would be the Avatar. Right, and that's and that's the thing. It's the that most often that final climax, that final thing, that is an aftermath to what is actually interesting. The actual interesting thing is, do you answer the question? And if so, then this is how that climax is going to resolve. Right. And that's and that's good. Uh, it's it means that and being aware of that is good because it means that you're not focusing on the part that is the flashy but less essential thing. And so all of this is kind of getting at that core contract, right? Is that people are going to put stuff on their sheets and say, "I'm going to be great at magic," yep. but by definition, because they have decided to play in a story, being great at magic is not going to solve their problem. Right. It's it'll help. And it'll drive, it'll give a sense of which direction, and it'll tell me what kind of problems that I will throw at them. But, and sometimes it'll help. And some, so here's one of the things that you will run into, and is one of the great paradoxes of trying to read something from a character sheet. If I take a skill at the maximum possible rank, there are two things I might be trying to communicate here. 
and you're nodding because I, I, I've, I've written about this, but this yes. was really a big deal. I could be communicating that I want to be so good at this that I don't get threatened in it and that this is my safe spot, or I could be communicating this is where I want you to kick <laughs> Bring it. Just keep hitting me. Yes, I want to be the best fighter. I, I want to have a super high fighting skill because I want to be in dangerous fights all the time or because I want to win every fight. And if I don't talk to the player, I can't tell just by looking which one it is they want. Magic is the same way. Do you do you just ask, or do you, I mean, like, especially at a table with, like, six people, what do you actually do? I mean, you just kind of go around one by one and say, hey, I've noticed, do you want X or Y? Yeah, I'm saying, like, I'm saying like so you're, you're, you're pretty heavily, you're, you, you, you've got a lot of uh, sort of thing. Are you looking to get pushed in that space, or are you looking to be safe in that space? Um, and... People, if they know what the question means, then they can answer it pretty straightforward. If they don't know what the question means, because sometimes they haven't thought about it themselves, or they just take it so much for granted that it's never even right. occurred to them that there's a different way to do it. Um, and most often, people will come back with kind of a middle-of-the-road answer, because yeah. nothing is ever quite that, that clear-cut. But you can test it. So you push it some, and you do it, and you see how, how well they respond to it, how much they like it. Because... I mean, and the rub is you can find a sweet spot. The reality is if you're an awesome swordsman, then the sweet spot for you may be that you kick everyone's ass except that one guy. Right. And that one guy makes you crazy, and having him as a nemesis is great and awesome and, and encouraging, but doesn't undercut your awesomeness in that. Um, right. Amber has always been a really good game for for teaching this because in Amber, one of the most important things in the game is how you are ranked in the respective skills. Uh, so there's a whole sort of social game around that. Right. And you you learn to pay attention to how people respond and think about it in that regard. But right. magic is the same way. Do you want magic to get you into trouble or out of trouble more often? Right. And maybe in, a, in Apocalypse World, right? So the magic stat, if yep. there is one, is weird. Yes, and a lot of the hard holder stats have really low weirds, right? Because yes. you're like you're the hard holder. You 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 know take care of the city. You're very rooted okay. in like what's going on here. Um, and what's interesting when people pick that the you know they when they pick up a playbook and they pick hard holder and they pick the negative two weird, and you're just like, oh, so you don't really want to deal with weird, huh? And they'll be like, yeah, no, not really. And you're like, well, let me show you how that's going to play out. <laughs> <laughs> it means you don't deal with it on your terms, right? right? Well, and, and that's and that's that's the inverse of uh, uh, of the apex thing, and it's why right. I actually for for a lot of games, even more than the the skill pyramid, which for those unfamiliar with fate, basically means that you have an apex skill and like two skills a step down and three step skill, so you get this pyramid of your skills. I love a Christmas tree shape, which gets you sort of a pyramid of skills, but one skill you suck at, and. Huh. The skill you suck at, once again, the question is, is that the thing you never want to do? Or the thing you want to do all the time and screw up a lot? Um, and uh, Cortex Plus supports that wonderfully. Uh, right. Because both Marvel Heroic and, and Leverage and all those things, basically it's like, that's the thing where the D4s are coming out. And right. if my, if my, you know, if my terribly terrible skill is stealth then whenever I try to sneak, stupid bad things are going to happen. And I'll get points for them. So of course I want to sneak all the time. I'm very <laughs> sneaky. Uh, and, and it's actually what, one of the things I like about games like in the Cortex Plus vein that lets you say, look, in narrative, my character is actually a very good sneaker, but has terrible luck in this regard. Or every time I try it, just... Other things are going to go horribly wrong. It's the, and I mean, th imagine that with a with a uh, a sword fighting character. You can have a character who nominally is entirely competent in a sword fight, but just loses terribly because one way or another he he's D'Artagnan. Ah, uh, uh, right. Everything just things go awry. Exactly. Like, it's not it's not his fault. <laughs> yeah. What I'm totally badass. If it were for that banana peel, the rain of rain of flying monkeys, and that solar eclipse, I totally would have taken that guy. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, well, and I think Marvel in general, Marvel specifically, does a good job of this too. When somebody picks Thor, they're yeah. saying things, and and the signals that come along with playbooks or pregens that everybody knows about are are in some ways much clearer. Like you're yeah. Thor, you want to get in a fight. That's that's what Thor does, right? You're Hulk, you want to not get in a fight, and then you want to be in a fight. 
right? You want to stay away from the fight and tell everybody how you can't. It's immoral. Yep. You might hurt people. And then we want to push you until you say... Yeah, until I snap! <laughs> until you, right. And the thing is, and this is why, and, and Fate does this in Cortex Plus, does this in a bunch of games do this, and it's a wonderful thing, is the once failure stops being a punishment, you right. open the doors to a lot of really, really cool behaviors. Right. Uh, and again, I mean, I, I, I was playing First Ed D&D this morning, and I, I love all sorts of stuff about it, but it's punishing. And yeah. I you can watch the game grind to a halt at regular intervals as we get to the next door and we have to search it for traps and listen at it and check the locks and do all the stuff and repeat the same process that we've done at the past 20 doors because this might be the door that will kill us. And <laughs> This one. <laughs> and, right. and, I'm not, and the thing is, I'm not going to say there's not fun in that, but that's a different kind of fun. And it's not a fun I'm looking for as much as it is. And the problem is, I actually think it's a very bad implementation of that kind of fun. Because the kind of fun I really dig that uh, the classic dungeon crawl kind of thing can give you is, I love problem solving. I love the, here is a complex and dangerous situation, and you need to use your wits and the resources available to come up with a way to get through it. I love that. That's fantastic and challenging and engaging and entertaining to me. But that if that could be solved with a checklist, as is the case with the door and looking for secret doors and all that stuff, that has yeah. stopped being engaging and has become rote. Right, right. Which is really kind of the ultimate challenge of, of especially magic, but almost all of gaming. Exactly. Is how do you keep it from becoming rote? Like, oh, there's a threat. Well, my oh, werewolf pack... Again. Right, exactly. My werewolf pack deals with threats like this, right? And to some degree, the way you deal with that as a GM is you say, okay, well, I'm going to give them a threat, and they're going to react this way because that's what they always do, and here's how it's going to completely screw them over. Oh, right? and you, you do go, go, like go a, even a step further. So the trick with almost all these things magical is go with it. There's, there's right. an instinct to say, let's keep it in check. Let's not let this magical thing kind of overwhelm things. No. You no. want the magic to work. You want it to work well. You want it to do the things it says it's going to do. And then you want to have the logical consequences that come forth from that. And right. that means that if lightning spells obliterate everything, then other people are going to start using lightning spells. And people are going to start running around with wards against lightning spells that bounce them back at you. And people will res the, the world will respond logically from these things. So don't... Don't stop these things. Roll with them and make them more cool and have them go further. And it's only when you get scared and stop that the ride becomes a problem. Right, because if your characters are just destroying every obstacle and they're winning and it's great, then people are going to start coming to them with problems. Right, exactly. Like, like hey, you dethroned the evil king. Great, so let me tell you about my problems, uh, which I now expect you to fix, because, right, you dethroned... You, you well, you're you awesome. Look, you like, killed an army. Right, yeah, right. So, so so now we need someone who can take on two armies, and you're... <laughs> Which, of course, you're fine with, because you seem like a really good guy, and since they're PCs, they'll probably even say yes before they even know what the person's asking. Yep, well, I mean, let me... So, here here's a thought experiment that is, is super useful, if, if this, uh, just to you GMs out there, if this is sounding a little bit too weird. What would you do if one of the PCs in your group would win every fight that they're in? Don't even worry about the mechanics. That's just the rule. If this guy gets in a fight, he will win it. Could you run that game? And the answer should be yes. But it's entirely possible that this is the first time you've thought about it that way, that you went, what? If he wins every fight, then he's just going to roll over everything? And this? No. Let him win every fight. And then you just realize the game's not about the fights. The fights are going to happen. And he's going to win them. But what happens between the fights? Why are the fights happening? What might make him want to lose a fight? What happens if he's fighting his daughter? What? That is a huge thing. I mean, it's the Superman thing. Superman right. is an amazing, brilliant character in the hands of a good writer and is an utterly mediocre waste of space in the hands of a just-okay writer. Right. I think, I think, you know, for all that we talk about Wolverine, right, because he's... Yeah. There's always a player at the table who wants to play Wolverine. You're yep. like, oh, right? Like, that character, like, if you look at the new movie that's coming out, I have really high hopes for it because 
it's kind of about that exact situation. So Wolverine wins every fight, yeah. right? He's immortal, can't die, really hard to kill, wins every fight, pretty much indestructible. Now what? Yep. He's lived for, you know, 80 years. Yeah. I'm too awesome. What do I do? What do I do with myself, right? And well, now throw him into Japan where he doesn't know anybody. He's yep. totally alone, right? He doesn't know who the good guys and bad guys So he can win a fight if he knew... But what he should be fighting. Great. You just want to fight. And in doing so, you've just empowered this group of bad guys. Great. Which now you'll have to kill, which means you're going to have to kill all those people, right? Exactly. Well, I mean, and similarly, one of the best things that uh, Marvel Comics did in in recent history was uh, when you did uh, the Wolverine and the X Men series uh, in one of the infinite splittings and resplittings of the various X Men titles. Wolverine was headmaster of the school. <laughs> you yes. can win every fight. <laughs> and the thing is, and what's more, that was that response there, that's the response of everyone in the setting. They're like, right. you? <laughs> you are, you're, oh my, you're kidding, right? Right, right, well, right. Yeah, so, so he's a super, super badass. Whatever, it's like, yep, well, and now the Johns need to get cleaned out. Who's going to be doing that? Right, great. Good luck fighting with the 12-year-olds. Right. <laughs> well, now, now, again, the trick of this is to not do it in a punitive fashion. There is exactly. A, there is a very exactly. strong instinct, once you realize you can do this, to say, well, if you can win every fight, then I'm going to just make your ability to win fights totally irrelevant. No. You've got to keep respecting it. And there are a lot of ways to respect it, and you just need to be mindful of them. But And to... Again, I keep talking about fighting, but the reality is that we're really it's talking magic. about... magic. We're talking we're, about yeah. whatever that thing is your yep. thing. Um, yep. There are a lot of ways to respect it. And one of the... It, you can respect something by not engaging it at all. Uh, the trick is making it clear to someone that they would have done X, but they know that you will absolutely wipe them out with your magic or your claws or your super thing if they try to do this. So this is the reason why they're doing crazy Byzantine thing over here. Right, exactly. And going back to Avatar, right, this is a character that tries to gather all the magic together, and only when he does so does he realize his actual problem, right, right? which is, oh, shit, I can win. Yeah. Like, what, is that, what, is like what? what does that mean? Now what, yeah. right? And I think, I think it's great. We've, in some ways, we've been using this fighting metaphor because it's, it, it gets rid of all the, like, well, how many spells do I have? Right. And how which many, like, specific just, version of magic am I using? Ah. Right, exactly. It just gets to this idea of power. Right, yep. like the the raw power that a character can wield. Right. So we only have a couple minutes left. So right. in that la- the last piece we haven't talked about is the source, which is I really yes. thought was an interesting addition. Well, the source is, I mean, and again, it, it that one ties back into tone. But the question is, where does magic come from, and why? And maybe your answer is I don't know. But you know what? If that's your answer, that's that's exactly as soft and squishy as it sounds like. Um, right. Yeah. Maybe you, you don't have to have it detailed out to huge, gigantic extent, but magic that comes from somewhere means it has a story attached to it. Um, right. If the magic comes from a pact with beings of power, well, guess what? You've just introduced these beings of power into your setting, and they had had to have some sort of reason to have these pacts, which means that they have agendas, which means something's going on here. I mean, clerical magic in D&D is actually this vast, untapped resource of something really, really interesting, because this idea that there are these really powerful gods out there granting spells to people that do all these great things, it's like, man, if you just decided to just take that idea and run with it, think about everything that does for a setting. Um, God, uh, I can't remember which game it is now, and I will feel really, really stupid about that later. Uh, but there is uh, there's one game out there where you're where there's li- you just literally keep a list of favors that you've done for gods, <laughs> um, so that you can call on those later. Um, right, that's great. Well, I mean, I think Dungeon World does a good job with the clerical magic because it puts the god a little bit more up front, and so you're supposed to describe your god and yep. pick out like what does your god actually want. And then what, what do you have to do to kind of honor your God? And those ideas really got me thinking, like, hey, wait a second. Why have I treated clerics like wizards with different right. spells? With different, yeah. Right. It, well, that's the thing. It's like, do you have a relationship with your God? If right. so, awesome. 
Do you not? Well, then, okay, do you have a relationship with your church? What are these other things? Right. Um, and that, but that's, but that's just one example. Um, some of it ties to prices. One of the, I mean, one of the fate uh, toolkit things is the the uh, uh, the void collars, which is right. the dark uh, version of magic. Well, yep, magic comes from somewhere, and that somewhere is terrible, <laughs> terrible, and. That there, everything pretty much extrapolates from that point. The, uh, the the idea of that terribleness and why it's terrible. They right. just, this is just one of those, think about where magic comes from some, and you may find that your magic gets a lot more interesting. Yeah, I think what struck me about that was the other ones, you know, when I think about tone as a game designer, it's not the, it's not, it's not the first word that would come to mind, but it's certainly something I think about. Like, how do I want this to feel for the players? And when I think about the other ones like cost or limit, it's sort of like trying to draw the box that magic fits into just a little better. And try to and trying to get it to all line up with that intent because because there's a thing. There's when you are doing magic, and this is gonna be true of almost any rule, have something in mind that it is that you're trying to accomplish. And maybe right. it's a scene from a movie or just something you've envisioned in your head or a fight going a certain way, and you're like, that's the effect I want. How do I get that effect? And if right. you, that's that sort of that should be your guiding star that you, right. that you thread through all these things and say, all right, well, if people can jump fifteen feet in the air to do high sword things, well, can they just jump over fifteen foot walls? Well, if not, why not? And that's right. and when you start answering these questions, when you start raising questions to yourself and finding answers to them you will find that your whole idea grows. And I think that starting with tone gives you that sense of like, all right, this is where we're headed. This is what we're shooting for. Right, and then cost, limit, and availability really grounded in the mechanics and try to get you some sense of like, how does this play out? But what I thought was so great about Source is it roots you back to the fiction. Exactly. There's, right. And, well, that, and that's because and that's if you look at all of these things, when you answer the questions that tell you what is the source, what is the, what is the price, what, just by asking those questions, you have to think about things that you maybe haven't thought about yet. Right. And even the answer, I don't know, yeah, right, yeah. Becomes, because then nobody knows. Like magic yeah. is this thing. Nobody knows where it comes from. Looking for the source of all magic in the world Pretty awesome story. Well, I mean, heck, um, for a fair number of the Final Fantasy games you've ever played, Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy X, for example, both of which, the source of magic, where the magic is coming from, the Mako in, in the case of the first and the, the summons in the case of X, those are huge plot points. Gigantic right. and awesome. I mean, right. there are things that get explored and unfolded over the course of the game and have these wonderful gut-twisting uh, explorations, and they're great. And it's just a simple question. <laughs> Where does it come from? Yeah. <laughs> cool, good. Well, I mean, my last question, I think, is, because we're, because we're getting down to the kind of the end of our time, what is it that, where, where, where does this come from in some ways for you? What is it that you feel, like, you know, this, this seems to me, you know, obviously you've, you've had a lot of thoughts about magic in your time as a designer, but getting to this point, what do you feel like has made you sort of think about this stuff this way? Frustration, two levels of frustration. So the first frustration was with magic systems that were too limiting to feel magical. So they felt like just straight up D&D &D spells, especially back in second and first edition, felt uh, like a straight jacket that did not feel particularly magical. It felt just like structured events. Um, that was a frustration that everyone's had. The the second frustration, though, was with overly mushy freeform magic systems where you can just do anything. And, oh, and the problem is, one, you can do that once. when you, The first time you discover you can do it, oh, just whatever you can describe, you can do. Right. Oh, it's awesome, and it's liberating, and it feels wonderful, and it's so cool. And we were so creative, and I built a rainbow and I ran up the rainbow with my flaming katana and I shot the dragon out of the air and then I did a triple black flip riding the wind spirits and it's, oh, these creative descriptions, I'm an artist of words and it's like, like oh, I hate you so much. I, <laughs> I, I, I wish I was still punching me. Um, but uh, the that, that overly squishy, once you can do everything, it be, all becomes very boring. Um, problem was the thing I, I kept running into in otherwise very creative, very interesting systems, and 
that's where I started really running into, and I mean, it shows up in other things. That that whole that constraints really breed what I consider real creativity, um, right? Rather than effectively jazz, not and that's unkind to jazz, but that's a bad jazz. Let's put it that way. That, right, exactly. Oh, good, good jazz. Well, jazz is like jazz is like one of my favorite things out there because jazz is something improv. Jazz is something that if you know how to play an instrument, you can do it, but you will probably suck at it. Because right. the amount of talent it requires to look like it doesn't take much work is way beyond what it looks like, the amount that it looks like. And the same is true exactly. of speaking and so many other things. And you need to have those walls and, 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 and build them up before you can really open things up. And I, I, I'm at the game where the, the point where if I'm at a table with people I trust to put the limits on themselves and to have that understanding... Then um, I could be free form, right? Free with that table, but uh, that takes a lot of trust. So, yeah. Well, and I also think that it takes up a certain amount of bandwidth, yes. right? Like you know, I only have so many brain cells that can be actively applied to this role playing game today, yep. and half of them are going to go toward me kind of structuring my own play while we're playing. Oh yeah. Well, the, right. there, there we get there we get to the other key thing that impacts all games, and that is, of course, energy level, right? And, yeah, in fact, we're talking about balancing your table. There's one of the other really crazy factors is how are you balancing tonight's energy level? Because Bob's tired. And right. He doesn't really want to be very creative. Maybe Bob just wants to throw some fireballs and well, call it a well, day. This, this, is, this, is the, uh, this is the Exalted problem. Exalted had the stunting rules, which are fantastic in a lot of ways, which basically say, hey, the, more, the cooler the explanation of the thing you do, the bigger your bonus and the more essence you get back. And that's great right. for a while. Until you're just like, there are only so many interesting ways I can describe chopping these guys' heads off. I am so sick of this. I am so tired. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Well, Rob, thank you so much, man. I think it was great to, to hear your thoughts on, on this framework, which is going to be in the Fate System Toolkit, yes, so people can check it out more there. But I think you gave a much, I mean, there's so much added for me. Well, that's about good, this stuff. again, I, as with all things I write, I completely forget it within the next 15 days. So I, I think it's something like it leaves your brain and goes on the paper, and that's where it lives. It's on the paper, right? Pretty, that's pretty much. I mean, I, I'm just this vessel. Things pass through me, and I occasionally remember parts of them, but that's really all that sticks. That and that's that. awesome. Beautiful, beautiful. Good. Well, Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's really a pleasure. And remember, folks, next month we'll have another interview uh, for the June game night, which is going to be on Taboos. So please join us uh, in June. I believe it's June 22nd. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing people then. Thanks again, Rob.